ROTI the accepted solution for reefing, but why? Understand why tap water poses challenges and why popular solutions produce the best tanks is just as important as knowing how to use it. Knowing where the pitfalls are, just as important as how to optimize for performance and do it cost effectively. All that is coming up. Hi, I'm Ryan, this is 52SE, where we explore marine tanks topic by topic to build our updated guide to reefing. Today, we answer these questions. What's in your tap water that could harm the tank? How do these four filters in an RODI system solve that problem? And how do I optimize each filter stage for water quality, cost effectiveness, speed, or even better, the value trifecta of all three at once? The direct answer is tap water contains disinfectants, elevated major elements, nutrients, and harmful levels of minor and trace elements, many of which are acutely toxic or poisonous to fish and coral when filling the tank or performing large water changes. Some of the type of poison that has a more gradual effect from small daily additions from evaporation and top-off replenishment. Some contaminants fueling undesirable pests in the tank. The best cost and performance balance solution to that for 75% of reefers will be installing a five-stage RODI with dual universal blocks, a single 75-gallon-per-day membrane running at least 50 PSI, and a single mixed-bed DI. Change out the sediment filter when the pressure drops, carbon blocks every 12 months, membrane every three years, and DI an inch before the color change reaches the end. The supporting evidence and answers for the 25% or one in four reefers where that isn't the case will be clear today. Those answers in scrubbable timeline chapters, starting with what are the pollutants and tap water that we care about, and why do they matter? Every water source is different and has a list of theoretical contaminants or pollutants, but rather than talk about the theoretical, we're going to dive right into real-life results, which demonstrate nearly every challenge reefers face with tap water via four local sources of water. Your tap water will be different than these, some better, some worse, but these varied sources are great to help understand what's commonly found in tap water and how to deal with it. The four sources include water here at the BRS facility, which uses Minneapolis's lime-softened surface water from the Mississippi River, two neighboring suburbs that use deep wells, one lime-softened by the city and one not, and one outer suburb that utilizes a home-based well. There are four major sources of pollution, disinfectants like chlorine and chloramines, major elements, nutrients, and minor and trace elements. Our viewpoints in each have changed greatly over the years, starting with disinfectants like chlorine and chloramines. There's a universal acceptance in the hobby that chlorine and chloramines are the type of poison that will kill marine animals in minutes to days, even at very low levels. At BRS, our water is near legal limits of three parts per million chloramines, but nearly all city water sources will have detectable disinfectants. The lowest cost and easiest way to deal with these disinfectants is a few dollar bottle of dechlorinator like Erase CL. If chlorine or chloramines were the only concern, I'd use dechlorinator, not RODI, but the scope of the challenges are obviously much more broad than just chlorine and chloramines. However, that near immediate toxicity of disinfectants to fish and corals does bring up a question as to why so many elements like chlorine, copper, or ammonia in our tap water is seemingly not toxic to humans who drink it every day, but acutely toxic to many forms of aquatic life. The answer is drinking disinfectants is not good for humans, but it's a requirement for distributing disease and parasite-free water around the city. The best practice is to remove the disinfectants with a tap water filter at your sink and not drink them. Contemplating why aquatic life is so much more sensitive helps us understand the scope of caring for aquatic life. The heart of it is the difference between drinking a glass of water and being submerged or breathing it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The exposure differences are dramatic. Second, humans also have organs like livers and kidneys that help us eliminate toxins from our bodies that corals don't. In contrast, corals will just bioaccumulate many of these toxins in their tissue until it's too much and they either get sick, develop impaired immune systems, or relent in the form of mortalities. This will become clear throughout today's video. 
The next tap water pollutant category is major elements like calcium and alkalinity. Most reefers don't consider these major elements like calcium or carbon and alkalinity to be pollutants or poisons. In fact, most of us dose calcium and alkalinity to the tank daily, which triggers the question of why do we remove calcium and alkalinity from our tap water only to add it back in? The answer is found in the definition of pollution, a substance that has a harmful or poisonous effect when sufficient quantities are absorbed, respirated, or ingested. You'll see why calcium and alkalinity can easily meet the threshold of poisonous in a second. What this gets at is we all want salt mix to mix up to the level state in the box. The only way a salt mix manufacturer could ever produce a salt mix with predictable levels is to assume that you're starting with zero everything. In the case of our experiment, we mixed up some Tropic Marine Pro Reef using zero TDS water that resulted in 440 calcium and 6.8 alkalinity, which is spot on for what they suggest or formulate for. However, when we mixed the same salt with our first sample of softened homed well water, the calcium was unchanged, but the alkalinity of the mixed salt water shot up to 26 dKH because the tap well water had a dKH of 19 coming out of the ground. The reason the calcium didn't go up is because most home-based water softeners remove calcium via ion exchange resin, but the most home-based softeners also don't remove alkalinity to the same degree. While I've never run a reef tank at 26 dKH to find out, I'm certain that it would cause rapid mortalities, likely within minutes to hours, but certainly days. An instance where carbon and alkalinity meets the standard of a substance that causes harmful or poisonous effects at elevated levels. On the other side of town, we mixed up some lime softened city groundwater, which also didn't increase the calcium level, but the alkalinity jumps from 6.8 to 9.6, or 41% higher than what the Pro Reef is formulated for because the tap water has 2.6 dKH to begin with. In this case, the city's lime softening process precipitates out both calcium and alkalinity, but doesn't get all of the alkalinity. You'll see the difference in the next city water supply, which neighbors this one. The neighboring city presumably draws from the same ground aquifer, but the city doesn't soften the water with lime. Net result is when we mixed up the salt water, the calcium jumped 80 points to 520 and alkalinity 17 points to 24 dKH, which is obviously not what we're looking for with our reef tanks and highlights the importance of starting at zero, zero. One other example is our water here at BRS, which is lime softened Minneapolis surface water from the Mississippi. We had almost the exact same results as the lime softened groundwater with no change to calcium, but the alkalinity jumps up 48% to 10.1 dKH. To get an idea of your city water's major element concentrations, test the water directly or grab a gallon of distilled or RODI water, mix up some salt and test against some salt water made from your tap. It'll be clear why the salt manufacturer formulates anticipating you're using zero, zero pure water to buy consistent nationwide or even global results. Next, nutrients, nitrate and phosphate are one of the primary concerns reefers have about their tap water. It's a legit reason, just not the one that I find most compelling and in many cases, totally unnecessary. Simply put, if your tank looks great and has a stable phosphate and nitrate level that's within your target goals, the nitrate and phosphate in your tap water is a non-issue. Most of our tanks have filtration designed to absorb and export nitrate and phosphate, so that might be the case for you. However, if you're experiencing consistently rising nitrate and phosphate and the negative effects related to nutrient pollution like pest organism growth, then testing your tap water is a good idea. We tested freshly mixed salt water from those same four sources and found that the home-based well had 0.27 parts per million phosphate and zero nitrate. Any testable phosphate level might seem bad and I wouldn't want to fill a brand new tank with 0.27 phosphate, but 10% water changes would effectively only add 0.02 and 1% evaporation and top off would round to 0.00 in your tester. 
whatever fish food you feed will likely grossly outweigh this nutrient contribution. Next, lime softens city groundwater at 0.06 parts per million phosphate and 0.2 nitrate, which is the best we'll see today. Even though both are measurable, they're immaterial. And from a nutrient perspective only, I would use this water. The neighboring city's unsoftened groundwater had a stunning 1.8 parts per million phosphate and two nitrate. I don't think anyone would knowingly use near two parts per million phosphate water in a reef tank. Our lime softened surface or river water here at BRS had a 6.9 phosphate and 5.4 parts per million nitrate. The phosphate's actually added in back after the softening process by the city to protect the pipes from corrosive effects of disinfectants on century old pipes common to many older cities and first ring suburbs. The elevated nitrate is related to the increased organics in the surface river water source. Nutrients in surface water often swing with the seasons. The nature of elevated nutrients and knowledge of century-old corroded pipes is enough for me to want to filter the water source as well. So from my perspective on the four water supplies, there was two hard no's, one questionable, and one I wouldn't be concerned about using from a nutrient perspective. This is debatable, depending on how well your system uptakes and exports nutrient pollution. Marine tanks are habitats that incorporate refugiums, scrubbers, carbon dosing solutions, or abundance of coral generally can absorb a lot of excess nutrients with minimal efforts. This is the value of understanding not just what you can do, but why. Everything can be adapted to your specific tank. Two nutrients we didn't talk about are ammonia and silica. Ammonia is a much more toxic form of nitrogen than nitrate. Silica is theorized to fuel some diatom-based slimes. In our case, the two cities that use chloramines as a disinfectant, which is chlorine mixed with ammonia, had ammonia in the water at 0.55 and 0.77 parts per million. Ammonia is something you can often detect by odor in your saltwater mixing or top-off bin, but can be tested for as well. If your city uses chloramines as their disinfectant, which is at least 50% of municipal water supplies now, know that your water almost certainly has ammonia. In another ICP experiment we did on freshwater and seven local water sources, silica measured as silicon ranged from five to 13 parts per million, which is much higher than natural seawater. For me, the jury is still out on how much silica contributes to slimes like diatoms. Diatoms do require silica to form their glass-like cell walls, so maintaining low levels could certainly be a limiting factor for diatom growth, but I've never seen that demonstrated convincingly, and even if it did, it doesn't automatically mean the inverse, that the high levels of silica are the cause of diatom problems, and more is to be learned here. That said, anecdotally, silica can be one of the hardest things to remove from tap water, and at my house, I had sky-high 23 parts per million silica, which is near twice the others that we shared. That tank certainly had diatom issues. I will share the best ways to treat for silica in tap water. However, for most of us, rather than debate the merits of silica, I'd prefer to start with natural seawater levels of silica formulated by the salt mix manufacturer in a good salt mix that can only be created if they know that we're starting with zero. The next pollutive consideration for tap water is minor and trace elements. Last week, we shared some studies where something like copper levels goes from biologically beneficial to harming the immune system of the coral to rapid mortalities. However, the range that that happens is basically untestable with hobby-based test kits. ICP may be better, but even that doesn't account for what's bioaccumulated in the coral's tissue. Many of our cities and homes use copper or copper-containing pipes. When we tested seven local sources of water for copper, four were likely okay, but three were way higher than I'd used for filling, water changes, or topping up a tank with approaching half a part per million copper. Just to give you an idea how this goes way beyond the obvious with copper and corroded old pipe systems, there's an entire periodic table of elements. But we found another using ICP testing of our tap water, which was zinc. 
There's a study called the effects of zinc supplementation on growth and coloration of stylophora, which found levels of 100 micrograms per liter or 0.1 parts per million zinc detected a considerable 62% growth reduction and loss of chlorophyll A. In our case, five of the seven freshwater sources we tested were near zero zinc, but one home well and one city source were 0.26 and 0.35, which is two and a half to three and a half times the levels of zinc that produce 62% less growth and that loss of chlorophyll. Another example of where the right concentration may be beneficial or harmless, but elevated levels can rapidly become toxic, even the parts per billion. Starting with zero, mixing the salt mixes to intended levels, a much more reliable, predictable solution. So where do these elements come from? Some are dissolved from what the source ground or surface water comes in contact with, but can also be the result of aging distribution systems in corroding pipes. Water is referred to as a universal solvent because the water will dissolve some of much of what it comes in contact with because it has a positively charged hydrogen and a negatively charged oxygen, and the water essentially pulls the other compounds apart and dissolves them into the water. This is happening in rivers as the water flows over all kinds of contaminant sources in the groundwater as it passes through the rock and minerals, and even in the city pipes, specifically older pipes. Net result of all this is proactively filtering tap water for disinfectants, nutrients, major, minor, and trace elements. RODI, or reverse osmosis deionization, is the accepted solution for a vast majority of long-term successful reefers, and one of the few things that reefing nearly universally agrees on. Time to find out how an RODI system treats for everything we just described effectively and how those filters can be tweaked for better performance. An RODI or reverse osmosis deionization system is a combination of four distinct filter types that combined together produce ultra-pure water, most commonly referred to as zero TDS water or water with zero dissolved solids and measured with a TDS meter. I'm gonna explain the four filter types in order of importance. The first is the main filter, the reverse osmosis membrane in the white canister up top. The rule of thumb is to use a single 75 gallon per day DuPont Film Tech, formerly Dow, membrane. That's because 75 gallons per day is enough for most reefers' needs. Under ideal conditions, the DuPont 75 gallon per day has the highest rejection rates, up to 99%. There are faster membranes of 100 and 150 gallons per day and dual membrane options which double the output and effectively cut the wastewater in half. Understanding how these work will make it much clearer which configuration is right for you. In optimal conditions, the various membranes alone without the pre-filters can remove 96 to 99% of the TDS or dissolved solids in the water. I mean, if your home has 100 TDS, the water in the membrane will drop into just one to four TDS. The oral membrane performs a vast majority of the work and typically has a very long lifespan of three years. However, the membrane alone performs poorly with a short lifespan without the sediment and carbon pre-filters, and basically you'd never see a membrane used alone. Why they're configured as a complete RODI system with pre-filters will become apparent in just a moment. In reefing, we want the highest RO membrane rejection rates possible, 99% being ideal because what makes it through the membrane will need to be removed by the DI resin, something we'll also get to a bit later. Depending on the membrane selected and how the system is run, 96 to 99% TDS removal is typical. Where you fall in that range is primarily influenced by the membrane selected and operating to spec. Outside of the membrane itself, water pressure is that spec I'm talking about and the most important driver of RO performance, both water quality and speed of production. Most of the popular DuPont FilmTech 75 and 100 gallon per day membranes require a home water pressure of 50 PSI to work properly. In my experience, most homes are in the 40 to 60 PSI range. These membranes are designed for typical home use with typical home pressures. Some of the faster 150 gallon per day membranes require 65 PSI for optimal performance and may require a booster pump. So why does pressure matter so much? 
The understanding of how thin film composite RO membranes work has evolved in recent years to essentially the RO membrane is a cylindrical filter that if you unrolled it, you can see is really a sheet membrane filter called a thin film composite membrane. The thin membrane has pores so small that they predominantly only let small water molecules through and leaves larger contaminant molecules behind to be flushed out with the wastewater. Your home's pressure essentially squeezes the water molecules through the small membrane pores to produce purified water. The higher the pressure, the more that it will squeeze through. Higher pressure increasing rejection and performance as well. To demonstrate the fact, we ran a 75 gallon per day membrane at a variety of pressures as low as 10 psi to 90 psi and monitor both rejection rates as well as flow rates and how much water they produced in a single day. You can see here at 10 psi, the rejection rate was as low as 87%. The water still contains 13% of the contaminants, but even by 30 psi, it jumps up to 96%, and by 50 psi, we hit 98%. And by 70 PSI, we hit 98.5% of the contaminants rejected. Just for reference point, a jump from one TDS to two TDS will double the DI resin consumption, something that we'll explore further in a moment as well. However, something just as important to many of you is flow rate. 75 gallons a day is pretty slow, just three gallons an hour, so speed may matter. Maybe not every day, but certainly you'll run into a day where you need it as fast as possible. 10 PSI, the system only produces nine gallons a day. That's like six cups an hour. By the time we hit 30 PSI, we're at 37 gallons a day or half the 75 gallons it's rated for. At 50 PSI, we're hitting very close to the desired rate of 69 gallons a day. At 70 PSI, 96 gallons a day. And at 90 PSI, we're doing 120 gallons a day or approaching double what the membrane's rated for. You can see how more pressure essentially squeezes more water molecules through the membrane and produces water faster. One thing that's valuable to consider is faster membranes or water production might not be better unless faster is important to you. 75 gallon per day DuPont Film Tech is a sweet spot of production and rejection rate performance, but what about the 100 and 150 gallon per day options? The DuPont 100 will give you an extra gallon an hour, 25 gallons a day, but the rejection rate typically drops a percentage point, which will increase DI resin cost to remove what it misses. If your water is fairly clean, this might be an extra DI resin change a year. If your water is very high in TDS, it could be three or four more cartridge swaps a year or 15 to 60 bucks a year. Just evaluate that against the value of the extra speed. The 150 membranes are a bigger challenge. Yes, you doubled the speed and that may be important, specifically if you have a bigger system. However, the best rejection rates are often hard to achieve unless you run in ideal conditions, meaning RO systems with 150 gallon per day membranes will likely consume more DI resin. They also require 65 PSI to work properly, which is above most home typical pressures, meaning you'll need a booster pump, which can add $100 to $200 to the cost of operating the system. This is fine as long as you're aware of the trade-offs going into what's getting that extra speed of water production. However, there's a different method of increasing flow rates without impacting rejection in that way, and they have the benefit of effectively cutting the wastewater produced in half as well, saving on water bills. It's two membranes run in series on a single system. We refer to this as the water saver configuration of membranes and my own preferred method of increasing flow rates. What this does is take the wastewater from the first membrane and feed it into the second membrane. We'll demonstrate how the water saver dual membrane configuration works with our water here at BRS. When we performed this test, our city water was 95 TDS at the tap. After passing through the first RO, the product water dropped to just 2.16 TDS and relatively pure at the flow rate of 72 gallons a day. The wastewater is also referred to as the concentrate because when we squeeze that pure water through the membrane, it concentrated the TDS and the wastewater to 126 TDS. At this point, that 126 TDS water would normally go down the drain. 
But in this case, with the dual water saver configuration, we feed that wastewater into the second membrane. Where it goes in 126 TDS, the product water is mixed with the product water from the first membrane to produce a combined 2.43 TDS at 138 gallons a day. The difference between 2.16 TDS in a single membrane and 2.42 TDS in a dual is immaterial and even not measurable on a typical TDS meter. Reduced wastewater, double the flow rates and immaterial increase in TDS is obviously desirable for most. It's the way I run all my systems. However, there are two reasons why we don't recommend them to everyone. One, they add to the cost of the initial unit or with the added on upgrade kit. Nearly any system can be reconfigured after the fact with a kit like this. The other consideration is if you already have really dirty water, like 500 TDS, that might already reduce the lifespan of the membrane to some degree, and to a lesser degree, you'll use a little bit more DI resin to get that residual TDS. However, there is a hidden win in all this that may balance that. Your pre-filters or sediment filters and carbon blocks are effectively working half as hard in the water saver configuration. The dual membranes in series, we don't significantly increase the water going through that sediment filter or carbon block, but we double the product water produced we get from that system. That means the pre-filters will have approaching double the usable life, close to 80% longer for the same amount of water produced, less environmental waste, and the upgrade has the potential to pay for itself within a couple of filter change. When considering the right flow rate for your tank, consider these two things. One, when do I want to turn the system on for my water change this weekend? A 75 gallon per day unit is about three gallons an hour. 150 gallon per day is about six gallons an hour. But remember that flow rate is also tied to pressure and a booster pump in our test showed you could boost the pressure and get as much as 200 or more gallons per hour from the same dual 75 gallon per day membranes and even better rejection rates and lower DI resin consumption. That said, believe it or not, the next most impactful filter on our RODI system is the cheapest. It's a sediment filter and it can be tuned to your system as well. The sediment filter is the cheapest filter and it might seem like it's just capturing dirt, rust, and larger particles. However, the best practice solutions are about maintaining pressure and membrane performance. That's why we don't suggest changing it just based on time, but rather when the pressure gauge tells you that it's clogged and pressure going into that membrane is reduced. The primary purpose of the sediment filter is just to protect the more expensive carbon block from getting clogged and membrane from being fouled. This is a case where the quality or type of sediment filter is not likely to have a direct impact on the quality of water. The TDS or dissolved solids will likely be close to the same before and after the sediment filter. However, indirectly, the sediment filter can be the lowest cost method of dramatically improving TDS performance on the entire system. This gets to identifying the right sediment filter configuration and when it's time to replace the filter. We're going back to the pressure again because once the sediment filter gets clogged with dirt, rust, and sediment, it reduces the pressure to all the other filters after it, including the membrane, which requires that pressure to operate efficiently. That means if we had 50 PSI at the house, but the dirty or clogged sediment filter dropped the PSI to 30, we would lose half of our flow performance or double or more the TDS getting through. We don't need to change all the filters to get back to ideal performance, just that few dollar sediment filter. Getting the rejection back up will cut the DI resin consumption by half or more and will immediately pay for itself, often multiple times over. Many people burning through expensive resin may find it to be dramatically cheaper just to maintain the sediment filters instead of constantly replacing resin. Couple ways to know when to change your sediment filter. Sediment filters will often get visually dirty. That can be a sign that they're depleted, but just as often they'll last a lot longer than that. Captures dirt, so often look dirty on the outside. However, a good depth filter will capture sediment of various particle sizes throughout its entire thickness. So visual assessment is just really not the best way to judge the state of the filter. 
However, if the carbon blocks, which are after the sediment filter, are getting visually dirty, that's just not a good sign, and the sediment filter is likely depleted, or it even means that it's gone beyond exhaustion point and needs to be changed prior to that. Visually dirty carbon blocks might also suggest that the sediment in your water is fine and getting through your filter, so using a smaller micron sediment filter might be wise. In very rare cases where reefers have ongoing problems with sediment, running two sediment filters in series, one larger micron first and a second smaller micron next, will greatly extend the time between filter changes and maintenance. It's likely less than 1% of reefers would require that. You'll know if you're one of them if the carbon blocks are getting clogged prematurely, which is not cheap. Best way to monitor and replace sediment filters is a pressure gauge. If your system doesn't already have one, clip in a pressure gauge right before the membrane. Note the pressure after a filter swap. Hopefully it's close to or over 50 PSI. And when the pressure drops enough to affect rejection rates or flow rates, which can be as little as five PSI, swap out the sediment filter. Pressure gauge can be less than 15 bucks and an easy fix. For the most complete picture, you could also put a gauge on the input line of the system to compare your home's pressure against the membrane pressure in real time. Note the filters themselves, even brand new ones, will drop the PSI a bit. This is somewhat rare, but if you find that your sediment filter is clogging too fast, you have to change them constantly. You have two options. First, you could try a larger micron size, like going from one micron to five. Good news is the five is less expensive as well. Most reefers don't need them as small as one micron. As long as your carbon blocks don't get dirty or get clogged, stick with that five micron, which should last longer. Alternatively, you can use a better sediment filter. Every sediment filter these days calls itself a depth sediment filter, meaning that it's looser micron on the outside and gets tighter towards the center. However, they don't all perform that task the same. Some do it in two or three steps or a small range. We use rosave.z filters here because they have a true graded density. You can feel the very density in your hand because the outside is softer and center is denser. It will last substantially longer. We cut this one in half so you can see how it collects various degrees of dirt and sediment throughout the entire thickness of the filter. While rosave.z's do cost a few bucks more, they can often last more than twice as long, making it both most cost-effective and less work. Next up, carbon blocks. Dual universal blocks changed out annually is the rule of thumb. Universal meaning any block designed to be used on all common disinfectants, both chlorine and chloramines. But what is that council based on and when does it not apply? The number one reason that there's a carbon block or multiple on RODI systems is to remove disinfectants that oxidize or destroy the membrane prematurely. Secondarily, they also remove some pesticides, herbicides, disinfection byproducts, and volatile organic compounds or VOCs that can make it through the membrane. Simply put, a long list of chemicals that we don't want in our water. There's a reasonable chance that you don't have a ton of these chemicals in your water, but it's not the kind of thing that a reefer can test for, even with ICP. Just something that we treat for along with the disinfectants using carbon blocks. As to which carbon blocks, how many, and when to change them out, our approach is dependent on the disinfectant in your water. Chloramines, chlorine, or well water, which should have none. There are carbon blocks that are best for each instance. A vast majority of carbon blocks out there are designed just for chlorine. However, the better, more modern blocks are also capable of treating for chloramines. We refer to those updated carbon block technologies as universal blocks because the blocks designed for chloramines also work on both disinfectants. In fact, they work even better on chlorine than the blocks designed for chlorine do. Chloramines are just chlorine and ammonia combined together. And they were developed as a more desirable disinfectant because they're more stable and they maintain their disinfectant properties much longer further down the pipes while also creating fewer toxic disinfection byproducts. Because of that, half the nation's cities have now dropped chlorine in favor of chloramines. 
However, what makes chloramines more stable or better for these city uses also makes them much harder to remove for us. To give an example of how much harder, we tested one of the most widely trusted chlorine carbon blocks in the world, but on our water that has three parts per million chloramines. Now, result is it didn't make it past our first testing point of 150 gallons before it already broke through our failure point and was passing through over 0.75 parts per million chlorine and rapidly got worse from there. In contrast to that, a universal carbon block that's specifically designed for both chlorine and much more stable chloramines lasted 20 times as long and hit over 3,000 gallons before we found its failure point. It does that because this type of carbon has sites that are capable of splitting that bond between the chlorine and ammonia, as well as simply longer contact time because there's just a lot more carbon in these types of blocks. There are two ways to find out which one your city uses, but to be frank, most reavers are just better off assuming that they have chloramines. The juice of investigating which one your city uses isn't worth the squeeze. The reason for that is more than half of the cities use chloramines, many switch back and forth seasonally, so relying on testing is sketchy, and more cities convert over to chloramines every year because it's easier to meet those increasingly strict EPA standards with chloramines than chlorine. However, if you are really confident that you have only chlorine, we'll show you how it can save you 10 to 20 bucks a year or so, and there's two ways to find out. One, check your city's water treatment website, email or call them, ask what they use, or if they have plans in the works on changing from chlorine to chloramines. Doing this annually would be wise. Alternatively, test for them. Pick up a total and free chlorine test strip. We have them, but you can find them at most hardware stores as well. Total chlorine test strips reads the total of both chlorine and chloramines combined. Free chlorine test strip is just chlorine. So if the test strip reads free chlorine and total chlorine as the same level, that's a strong indication that your city uses chlorine and there's an opportunity to optimize, use cheaper blocks and save a few bucks. However, if the test strip reads significant amount of total chlorine, but much less near zero free chlorine, that means that you have chloramines. The explanation is that everything in that total that isn't free is chloramines. Knowing what your water is treated with allows us to optimize the filtration strategy. For half of us with simple chlorine, a single standard block change out annually is often adequate. This is specifically true if you have a smaller tank or produce less water at a time. Carbon block's ability to treat for chlorine deteriorates the longer that it's on or the larger your water bin, but then has the ability to recharge some of the capacity during downtime when the system's off. So if you have chlorine, only run the system for a handful of hours to make 10 or 20 gallons at a single time, a single standard carbon block is a reasonable solution. If you have a larger tank that goes through more water or you prefer to make large batches of water at a time, you have a few other options. Change out the carbon block more frequently, like every six months rather than 12. Switch to a higher performance universal block, which will have much higher capacity and performance, and then stick to those annual change outs, which is actually cheaper, or run dual carbon blocks. There is a reason that the dual carbon blocks are the best solution. It's because none of these carbon blocks are 100% efficient. They all let some disinfectant or contaminants through, specifically more the longer that they're running or the carbon block's capacity is depleted. Running dual blocks in series always has one catching the residual breakthrough. At the start, the second block is just performing a polish to get near zero. But by the end of the life cycle, the first one's likely letting 50 to 75% through and really just reducing the load on the second. This is why at the start of today's video, I suggested a five-stage RDI with dual blocks is the best solution for most reefers. That said, a lot of reefers already own four stages with only room for one block, but would like to go to dual blocks later. The easiest solution is not buy a new system, it's just add on a canister that can put before the system with a sediment filter. This allows the first two to be used as carbon blocks. The single universal dual standard blocks will cost 10 to $20 a year less in filter changes than those who have to filter for chloramines, which we'll share next.
The filter replacement strategy for chloramines is still annually for most, but a bit different because the capacity of the filter on chloramines is tighter and a loose attempt at estimating the gallons produced is wise. In this case, redundant dual universal blocks change out every 5,000 gallons, which works out to about annually for most reefers. For reference, a 100-gallon tank that gets a gallon a day replaced from top-off and 10% weekly water changes is just under 1,000 gallons of product water a year. However, those blocks filter out wastewater, which is often three to four times the product water. So a 100-gallon tank uses about 4,000 gallons of water a year to produce 1,000 gallons of tank water annually. However, if you have two to 300-gallon tank, changing the blocks every six months is likely a better move with chloramines. Do the math on what your rough evaporation and water change consumption is, multiply that by four to account for wastewater, and make an informed decision on when to change out the blocks. Why every 5,000 gallons or annually for an average size tank? Well, in our testing with a 12-hour on-cycle, which is about 35 gallons of water, one block lasts approximately 3,000 gallons before we had more than 20% of the chloramines breaking through. Running series like this, leveraging that reducing effect where the second one only has to deal with a much lower concentration, we could probably get three to four times the capacity, or nine to 12,000 gallons. However, 20% breakthrough is higher than many would like, and those generic rules of thumb need to have significant buffer to be useful to a wide audience. For instance, the performance would be lower for those who produce 50 gallons at a time, or run larger systems on larger cycles, or if they use faster than 75 gallon per day membranes, and the contact time with the carbon is less, or other considerations that go into a buffer. 5,000 gallons are annually for an average size tank, or every six months if your tank is bigger. For those who don't want to operate on rules of thumb and either want to make sure that they're not going past exhaustion or get as much useful life from the filter as possible, you can test when the blocks are depleted. Use one of those total chlorine test strips on your wastewater, which is water that's passed through the carbon blocks, but not through the membrane. Zero total chlorine is the best, but anything over 0.25, I'd certainly change it. If you do this, make sure to test at the end, just before your bin is full, which will give the best representation of performance. Now, the test strips may cost more than you save on the filters, so it's probably more about ideal performance than savings. So what about well water users? They don't have disinfectant in most cases, so in some ways this is easier. The challenge is well water isn't tested and regulated the same as city tap water. Kind of on the reefer to test for and filter appropriately. Not always, but home wells are often near areas of agriculture with fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides. In that case, I'd make my own evaluation of the quality of the well water and use one to two of any block rated for VOCs or volatile organic compound removal, and this is gonna be lower cost than the universal blocks. One thing to note about carbon blocks is they do not remove any meaningful amount of dissolved solids, or TDS. A brand new one might actually even add TDS with those dusty finds, and part of why most RDI systems have flush kits. I suggest opening the flush kit for 10 to 20 minutes after a filter change. It's also possible some of the blocks can change the electrical charge of some of the contaminants, which can change the TDS reading. Keep in mind that a TDS meter isn't a direct measurement of TDS, just an estimate based on electrical charge. It's the membrane and DI resin that pulls out the TDS. DI resin's next. There's a one-size-fits-all, coupled with the nuance to various Reaper-optimized solutions here, too. The DI resin is what catches everything the RO membrane misses, and best practice for a majority of reefers is just to use a single canister of color-changing resin and change it an inch before it's depleted. The water should always read zero TDS coming out of it. That's all most reefers need to know, but resin is a topic with a lot of nuance, and understanding how it works allows for more advanced solutions that address specific desires, mostly related to using less resin or removing somewhat rare contaminants. Be warned that this is a bit reef nerdy, but if you understand the resin topic, 
you'll actually understand a lot more about water in our tanks that goes beyond just resin. First, how does DI work and when does it not work? DI resin is just tiny beads with an electrical charge that attracts contaminants and effectively removes them. In a mixed bed resin like the ones that are used in reefing, there are two beads mixed together. If you look close, the mixed bed resin has two different colored beads. One of them is called a strong acid cation resin that removes positively charged contaminants. The other one is a strong base anion resin which removes negatively charged contaminants. So that's actually the limitation of DI resin is it only removes things with a negative or positive charge and it will let things through that don't have a charge at all. So your TDS meter may read zero TDS because there's no electrical conductivity, but those things without a charge are actually making it through and not read by your meter. That is why we have all those pre-filters, we have the RO membrane combined with the DI resin because they're all serving a different function to produce ultra pure water. What you might find to be cooler than that is an ion exchange resin like this doesn't actually absorb contaminants. What they do is exchange pure water with contaminants. Most people know that pure water is H2O or two hydrogen and an oxygen. What these resins do is trade contaminants for hydrogen and oxygen to produce pure water molecules. The way that ion exchange resin works is the cation resin removes positively charged contaminants like ammonium. It does that with this method. The cation resin is surrounded with hydrogen ions that have a weak affinity for the resin. However, when something like ammonium comes along that the resin has a stronger affinity for, it releases that hydrogen and captures the ammonium in its place. So the surrounding water no longer has ammonium, but it does have an increased amount of hydrogen. In contrast, the anion resin does the opposite by removing negatively charged contaminants like silica. It does that with a similar method. The anion resin is surrounded with hydroxides, which are oxygen and hydrogen attached to each other. The hydroxide has a weak affinity for resin. When the negatively charged contaminant like silica comes along, the resin has a stronger affinity for silica, so it trades that hydroxide for a silica. Net result is less or no silica in the water, but there are more hydroxides. This is the cool part. The excess hydrogen or H from the cation resin exchange and the hydroxides OH in the water from the anion exchange combine together to create H2O or just pure water. So a mixed bed resin isn't just removing contaminants, it's trading contaminants for effectively pure water creation. Understanding why this works is key to understand why we never want to use the resin to the very end or full color change or the outdated method of changing it after the TDS meter reads anything other than zero. In fact, you'll see why color changing resin is better than a TDS meter alone and it goes beyond just convenience. The reason is once these resins hit the end of their life and read anything other than zero TDS, it isn't just a general mix of contaminants being released, it's a concentrated purge of something very specific. To demonstrate this effect, we took some anion resin which removes silica. Our tap water has about 11 parts per million silica, and you can see to remove the silica to zero or near zero for most of the test. However, when the resin hit its end of life, it didn't just go back to 11, it hit over 25 parts per million and purged silica. But once it was done, it started to drop likely because it was about to purge the next contaminant in line. The reason the resin purges like this is it has a stronger affinity for silica than the hydroxide it started with. However, the resin also has a stronger affinity for nitrate than silica. So when nitrate comes along, it lets go of that silica in favor of the nitrate. One step further, when the resin has a stronger affinity for phosphate. So when the phosphate comes along, it lets go of the nitrate in favor of the phosphate, creating layers of contaminants within the resin based on the weakest to strongest affinity for the resin that all move towards the top but not evenly. This is the case with cation resin as well, where one of the weakest bonds and first contaminants to be purged is ammonium, which is a form of ammonia that has a weak positive charge, but the resin can remove it. 
Our water has 0.9 parts per million ammonia, presumably from the chloramine, so lots of people have a similar amount of ammonia. Initially, the cation resin can remove it all or near all, but once it gets depleted, it doesn't just go back to 0.9, it nearly triples that during the purge to 2.4 parts per million, and then starts to fall off for the next weakest contaminant to purge. The purge effect is why we suggest swapping the resin once the color change is about an inch from depletion and not trying to ride the razor's edge all the way to the end. And it might also be apparent now why the color change is more valuable to most reefers than a TDS meter. The color change allows you to predict and completely avoid a problem where the TDS meter only detects the problem after it's happened. A TDS meter is still wise for membrane performance and to be sure with peace of mind with the DI resin because the indicating dye is not perfect in rare cases. But combined, color change back with TDS meter is the best practice solution. Now, in most cases, these anion and cation resins are all mixed together in what's called a mixed bed resin. There's a different way to do it called a dual bed where the cation resin's in the first canister all alone and not mixed. A second canister filled with anion resin alone often followed with a mixed bed canister for polish. In our testing, that produced the purest, lowest conductivity water that treats for some of the hardest to remove contaminants. But water quality really isn't the reason to do it this way. The reason most reefers find themselves doing this is because they're burning through standard mixed bed resin really, really fast, and they're tired of the maintenance and cost. By far the most common cause of rapidly depleting DI resin is carbon dioxide in your water or something else that's consuming the anion resin. In a color-changing mixed bed resin, the cation resin is largely brown, and the majority of the anion resin beads contain a blue dye, making them various shades of blue to clear depending on how much that dye they picked up. When the anion resin is depleted, the blue dye turns clear, making the resin appear to turn golden brown. So when you see that blue color change all the way to the end of the filter, it might seem like the resin is fully depleted, and the anion resin certainly is, but in a vast majority of cases, the cation resin is often not depleted. If you have carbon dioxide gas in your water or something else rapidly depleting the anion resin, that blue change will happen really fast. Anion resin depleted, but the cation resin beads might have as much as 90% of their life ends up being pretty wasteful, costly, and time-consuming. The solution is a three-stage DI, where the first canister is a full cartridge of cation resin only, the second canister a canister of anion resin only, again referred to a dual bed system, both color changing, so it's obvious when each is being depleted, followed with a mixed bed resin for the final polish. Once you do this, it's not uncommon to find that the anion resin cartridge is no less two times as long as before, and you change out the cation resin between three and 10 times less often. As long as the first two in the dual bed system are maintained, that mixed bed at the end may last years. That brings up the obvious question, why does anyone do a mixed bed when dual beds are clearly more efficient? And why is there a mixed bed at the end of this system? The answer is while dual beds might be more efficient, they don't work quite as well at purifying the water. Something that we tested and confirmed here in Investigates. The reason the dual beds work well, but not as good as a mixed bed, is the dual bed of separate cation and anion cartridges are essentially single pass systems where each filter pulls out what it's going to pull out based on electrical charge at that exact moment. The mixed bed is different. By mixing the beads together, it's effectively similar to creating hundreds of thousands of small little filters inside of a single cartridge, where each bead has an opportunity to change the contaminants form to something that the resin has an affinity for. Mixed beds are just universally accepted as producing much pure water by every industry that filters water. So that's why you don't see reefers use dual beds alone and they always have a mixed bed after. One note about that third canister of mixed bed resin that's used for polish is the color change is less reliable because it's not obvious if your dual bed system is allowing more cation or anion contaminants through and which one's gonna be depleted the fastest in your mixed bed. 
There are two types of mixed bed resin that have different dyes, and you're gonna pick one based on what you think or experience tells you is going to deplete first in your system. The standard type 99% of reefers use is where it presumes that the anion will deplete the fastest, so the dye is in the anion. But you can get mixed bed where the cations died. We call this pro series mixed bed simply because only a pro with a very specific desire would use it. You could explore both types, but a non-color changing mixed bed in a TDS meter would work well as well. Keep in mind that as long as you maintain those first two stages of the dual bed, the mixed bed should last a very long time, often a couple of years. It's important that if you do implement the dual bed setup, that the cation resin's first, anion second, and there's no use testing TDS between the two. It might seem logical that the first will have removed some of the TDS, and it does, but what it also does is mess with the conductivity in a way that the TDS meter doesn't read it that way. In fact, often it reads higher. Also notable that the cation resin also has a very strong odor to it, so don't get caught off guard when you open it and pack your resin. Another tip here is if you have a lot of DI resin consumption, often it has nothing to do with the resin itself or what's in the water, it's actually pressure on your system. And 50% of the time, it's just because the flush kit was left open. Close it and the problem is solved. Now that we've made the case, do you agree with the counsel that we shared at the beginning of this video that 75% of reefers are best served with a five-stage RODI with dual universal blocks, a single 75 gallon per day membrane, running at least 50 PSI, and a single mixed bed DI? Change out the sediment filter when the pressure drops, carbon block every 12 months, membrane every three years, and DI an inch before the color change reaches the top. If not, what do you recommend to other reefers or use yourself? Next episode of 52SE, one more source of pollution in the tank that most don't think about, but is undeniable all the same. Some of it we can't prevent, but we can account for it and make them a non-issue. Pollution from the environment and other tank inputs, coral warfare, air, hands, equipment, additives, and to a much smaller degree than you might expect, salt mixes. That and the entire 52SE playlist right here.